0: This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona.
1: Their worship was empty to the Lord because it was all external, because it was all just going through the motions rather than a heart that's poured out, emptied out before the Lord coming into worship. We for ourselves, you know, when we come to worship, when we come before the Lord, whether it be when we gather corporately or when we are alone on our own, how much do we go through the motions versus how much of it is really from the depth of our hearts?
0: If you've been in church for any length of time, you may have heard the word revival. But just what does that word mean? If you put the word revival after the name of a meeting, does it make it a revival? Is it just a title? No, revivals are much more. They're special times in history where God moves mightily in the hearts of His people and in mass draws them back to Him. So how do revivals start or do they have anything in common? Yes. They all start when individuals realize their desperate need for God. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Hosea, chapter 8, verse 1, for today's study.
1: Well, we are in the book of Hosea tonight. Let me ask you this question as we begin here. And this is just a thought question, just for you to consider and ponder. What brings revival? What brings revival? Now we all know the Holy Spirit brings revival. That without the Holy Spirit there is no true revival. But beyond the work of the Holy Spirit, what is it that brings revival? I used to belong to a church denomination that at least twice a year we had Revivals, okay, at least twice a year we had a week-long's worth of meetings that we called revivals. And it was not necessarily a revival, but it was meetings every night for a week. Sometimes it was. Sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was encouraging. Sometimes, man, it was blessing. Sometimes, uh, you know, the Lord really moved. Other times, it was a week's worth of meetings, okay? Do you get my point? So just labeling something a revival does not make it a revival, the, through history, there have been some great revivals. I mean, massive moves of God, not just in one church and not just in a small locale, but great Moves of God. Uh, a couple of men, Elmer Towns and uh, Douglas Porter, they wrote a book, "The Ten Greatest Revivals Ever," and they spoke in that book about these ten different revivals, not necessarily ten different revivals, but actually there were more along the line of the epics. Uh, ten, ten moves of God, ten refreshings of God that came, and most of the time in that one time, there were several outbreaks of what God was doing and moving with. So, again, as they write these, they write, of course, that the first one was on the day of Pentecost. We know that. The Holy Spirit was poured out, and literally thousands came to Christ, and that really birthed the church. The uh, next, really, revival that we see, well, we know that in that first century there was a great outpouring of, of the Lord, but in the long run of things, we actually have to jump ahead all the way to about the thirteen to 1500 time frame. Because you see, in around 300 A.D., the church became legal, Okay. And suddenly the Roman Empire adopted the church. It became, in essence, a state religion. It became very political at that point. It became very power led more than spirit led. And so we find that about a thousand years of what's called the dark ages moved in. And again, though there were small pockets of God moving and working in the lives of individuals or in small communities, really Really, the main outpouring of God was, was pretty much suppressed during those years. It came about during the times of the 13 to 1500s, uh, mid-1400s, that there was a move of God. It was the beginnings, just the, the very beginnings of what's called the Protestant Reformation. Now those things came about with uh, the Lollard revival. Uh, it came about at the burning of a man by the name of John Huss, who was a, a Czech uh, priest, and uh, again he was he was a guy that again was proclaiming, declaring the Scripture, and he was burned at the stake. Uh, there was another guy by the name of Savonralos, Again, a revival that came from him. And again, another another friar that again the Spirit of God came upon him, moved and worked in his life, and all of that took place around the late 1400s. Then the Martin Luther nailing the 95 Thesis on the castle door there at Wittenberg, that came at 1517, and from that was kind of the birth of the Protestant Reformation, and from that there was a great move of God that we saw that that really began all around the world, and men such as Luther and uh, Zwingli and Calvin and Knox, all of these men came to the forefront, and God used them mightily as God God was pouring his spirit out and revitalizing and reviving the church. And many revivals sprung from that. And then after that, there was others that came about in the 1700s. In the 1700s, we had what was called the Great Awakening. On through that time, British historians, uh, a lot of times they speak about it as the evangelical revival. But through that time, there was a great move of God during the early 1700s. Then in the late 1700s came the second great awakening. From that, there was Cornwall's Christmas revival. There was a Yale revival. There was a Cambridge Revival, revival. Uh, Geneva's Second Reformation came about. Uh, many things, again that God was moving within the land. And actually that second great revival was such a powerful time that it resulted actually in the abolition of slavery, the end of child labor, the beginning actually of the feminist movement, the move for universal literacy and reformation of prisons. All of that came out of that second great awakening. And then in the mid-1800s, Another revival took place, not just local, not just in the United States, but actually around the world. But from that came men like Charles Finney and some of the others that, again, God moved greatly on. And so as we see these things, we understand and know that God is moving at different times in different places. On into the 1800s, the Layman's Revival came. Uh, With that was the Jamaican Revival, the Ulster Revival, the D.L. Moody British and Evangelistic Campaigns. So all of these things where God was moving so powerfully. Then we get into the 20th century and the earlier part of the 20th century... God poured his spirit out in a powerful way. We hear of the Welsh revival. We hear of the Azusa Street revival. We hear of a Korean Pentecost. We hear of a Manchurian revival. And the Mitsu outpouring outpouring from India and, and Bangladesh. God on the move in the midst of his people. Then after World War II, there was a revival time from around 1935 to about 1950. There was this move that as men came back from this war and just the drama and the trauma of, of wartime coming back and seeking an answer from God. From this, uh, came the rise of a New Zealand revival. Also the rise of, of Billy Graham and, and his First uh, great uh, Los Angeles crusade, Uh, men like uh, Duncan Campbell uh, from Scotland, again, God pouring his spirit out all around the world. Then we came to the Baby Boomer Revival, okay? The Baby Boomer Revival from about 65 to about 75, 1965 to 1975, and this is as, again, the, these these children that have come out of the parents of World War II and not finding within their parents uh, answers for all the things that were bothering their life. And they started tripping out on drugs. They started uh, living out their lives, uh, free sex and just loose, just just absolutely no cares. And finding absolute emptiness in the midst of all of that as they turned away from everything that they knew to be godly in an effort to seek God. Okay, and from that came the birth of the Jesus movement. During that time of the Jesus movement, Calvary Chapel uh, movement was also started. And again, literally thousands came to church, or came to Christ. It was also during that time that uh, the mega church uh, was birthed, and mega churches kind of came up all around the country. Uh, there are other revivals all around the world during that time, both in England and in Indonesia, and even in Canada. So I come back to my first question. What brings revival? It's not just a meeting. It's not just a planned event. But I think that you could go back at, at each one of these movements of God, and we see that God moves in the hearts of men and women, that suddenly they see the greatness of their own personal need for spiritual renewal. They suddenly come to this understanding, by the Spirit's help, that whatever they're doing right now just isn't cutting it. They're just spinning their spiritual wheels, so to speak, and not gaining any traction within the kingdom of God. When we look at the book of Hosea, We see, particularly in northern kingdom of Israel, which Hosea primarily is written to, we see a lot of religious activity, we see a lot of spiritual activity, but none of it is really directed to the one true God. It's directed to these pagan gods. When Jeroboam took that northern kingdom away, split the kingdom from Solomon's son Rehoboam, And he feared that his people would come back to Jerusalem to come back to the temple to worship. And he presented these calves for them to worship. He said, here, these are your gods. This is your God. And you need to worship him. And so the people just... We're led right along into it. And so as we've begun already the book of Hosea, we've gotten through chapter 7, we see how God is bringing again this accusation against them that though he birthed them, though he bore them out of Egypt, though he cared for them and though he blessed them, they turned from him and started worshiping these pagan gods. So now we look at chapter 8, and it begins very strongly at, set the trumpet to your mouth. And whenever that trumpet call is, and we can go all through Scripture, we know that God is on the move, that something's going to take place, because God is calling for that trumpet call. He says, set the trumpet to your mouth, because he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant, and they've rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. But Israel has rejected the good, and the enemy will pursue him. You see, they were busy actively doing religious stuff, and they say, but God, we, we know you. Come and rescue us. Now, that ought to remind you of a passage that Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 7 when he says that many in that day will come up to me and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we served you? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we done many miracles? Haven't we done this? Haven't we, haven't we been religiously busy in your name? And what did Jesus say his response was going to be? Depart from me. Because I didn't know you. How sad that would be to be so busy about religion and yet missing God totally. And that's exactly where Israel was at this point in time. They cry out, my God, we know you. But actually, Israel has rejected the good. They set up kings, but not by me, God says. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold they made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces." It's interesting when man starts following their own wisdom, not only in their own walk, but in their choice of leaders that they have over them, they usually get exactly what they deserve and that's exactly what was going on with this northern kingdom says in verse 7, he says, they sow to the wind, they reap to the whirlwind. In other words, what they're doing they know is wrong and they continue to do the wrong with the expectation that it's not going to come back with evil consequences to them. You know the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. Well, they continued to go against God, and go against God, and go against God, and God brought judgment, God brought discipline on them, and they continued to go against God until God is finally going to literally loose the Assyrian empire against them. But up until that time, it says, hey... We're busy about being religious. We're busy about doing all these things. But in actuality, they're sowing to the wind, and they're going to reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall not, never produce meal. And if it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles, like a vessel in which is no pleasure. In other words, you could look at this a couple of different ways. Either the fact that Assyria, the Gentile nation, is going to come and literally swallow them up, or you could look at the fact that really Israel has moved into the same kind of worship, same kind of lifestyles of the Gentile nations around them. Now let's fast forward this now to 2013 and the church today. How much of the world is in the church, and how much is the church impacting the world? I think, by and large, we can look at the church in general and say that the world impacts the church much more than the church impacts the world. Beloved, I I think that there's too many similarities here to, to just pass that by. It says in verse 9, They've gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey, alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them. And they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. They had sought help from Assyria, and now Assyria is going to bring them into bondage. And he says, and you know what? There's going to be sorrow within their lives. God is still planning to redeem them, to restore them. But he knows as long as you continue this way, as long as you continue to deny me and go the way that you know you ought not be going, there's going to be consequences to pay. In, in verse 11, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for, from him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. God is saying, I gave them my law, and yet they looked at it and said, Oh that's, that, we don't need that, we don't need that. And that's what blows me away when I hear of church after church after church. And they don't even preach this. They might touch on a verse here or a verse there. But it's not the Word of God that they're teaching or preaching. Beloved, God gave us His Word to strengthen us, to correct us, to direct us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us, to instruct us in all matters of righteousness. Do we reject his word? You know, he speaks here a lot about Ephraim, particularly from about uh, uh, chapter 5 on. And actually, Nick and I got into this discussion last week. And really, as we were talking, and I, I started looking a little bit more at Nick. And really, the reason that Ephraim is mentioned so much here, it's just another way of calling Israel uh, uh, by name. Ephraim is kind of the idea of looking at Israel in a very secular way. Israel itself being the nation, but when they call him, but when God calls them Ephraim, he's kind of speaking to them in, in the, in kind of a secular mindset. Now, I don't know about you, but for me and my family, whenever my dad would get mad at us, he wouldn't just use our normal name. He would use our complete name, all of our name together. And he would call us in to make whatever kind of Attitude correction he needed to make. And and I look at this, and I see as God is writing to this, there's sometimes in this writing that he is saying, you know what, this is the way you're acting. You're acting this way, and that's why I'm calling you even Ephraim. Ephraim Ephraim made those altars of sin. They are altars for sinning. Drop down to verse 14. Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied or fortified cities but I will send fire upon his cities and he shall devour and it shall devour his palaces Israel's forgotten his maker but he's still building temples it would be the church today saying man you know what we we're, we're, we're a great corporation we've got all these things going all these events going we're going to build bigger better you know uh, churches and and yet Christ isn't a part of it it's, it's a sad declaration that if the Holy Spirit were to leave that church, nobody would know the difference. And yet they're able to build. They continue to go. Why? Because they're building on the strength of man. And it's empty. It's empty. It says that Judah has multiplied fortified cities. They tried to find strength in a material way. But God says, I'm going to send fire upon his cities. And it's going to devour his palaces. What is it that we can do as individuals to really stand against God? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, we may, as our feeble little beings are, stand and shake our fist against God and say, God, I'm going to be your enemy. And God looks at us. And probably with the blink of an eye or the very smallness of a breath, could take us out just like that. The only reason he hasn't destroyed his enemies is because, as the word said, God is long-suffering, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. You see, it's the patience and it's the long-suffering of God. And yet, still, we continue to build temples without his spirit, fortified cities without his protection. Chapter 9. Again, the judgment keeps coming. This is kind of like, okay, it, it is it is a book of going out to the woodshed, okay? I understand that. So it's really kind of hard for me as a pastor to bring you a real encouraging word in the midst of this. But if you hang with me, the last chapter is encouraging, okay? But chapter 9, here we are gonna, We're still in the woodshed, okay? Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other people. For you have played the harlot against your God. You've made love for hire on every threshing hole, uh, threshing floor. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them. The new wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. And again, they sought help from Egypt as much as they sought help from Assyria. And again, God is saying, you know what? You're going the wrong direction. Verse 4. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to Him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat it shall be defiled. In other words, as part of their worship services, offering of the sacrifices, and then they were allowed to partake of these things. Well, because they were offering these sacrifices to these pagan gods, God is saying, Not only is that wrong, but even in the eating of these things, you're going to be further defiled. Their bread shall be for their own life, and it shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Needles shall possess their valuables of silver, and thorns shall be in their tent. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to do away with all of the celebrations, all of the feasts, because they mean absolutely nothing. Their worship was empty to the Lord because it was all external. Because it was all just going through the motions. Rather than a heart, that's poured out, emptied out, before the Lord, coming into worship. We, for ourselves, you know, when we come to worship, when we come before the Lord, whether it be when we gather corporately or when we are alone on our own, how much do we go through the motions versus how much of it is really from the depth of our hearts? The days of punishment, verse 7 says, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows... The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane. It's interesting. It says, because of the greatness of your iniquity and great calamity. False prophets, liars, none of these things. Again, all of this is is just actions, just things that are are, going through the motion.
0: From the book of Hosea to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. The Twelve Minor Prophets are rich with important prophecies, some pertaining to things that have already happened and some pertaining to things that are yet to come. Join us as Pastor David teaches through these books verse by verse. You can get a free copy of today's teaching at our website. Simply log on to www.theopenword.com. That's theopenword.com. Although The Open Word is a huge blessing, we pray that it's not your only source for the teaching of the Word of God. It's our hope that you're attending a church that teaches God's Word from beginning to end. If not, we'd like to invite you to join us at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande for worship on Saturday evenings, Sunday mornings, or Wednesday evenings. For service times, driving directions, and more information, log on to TheOpenWord.com and follow the link to Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. Make sure and check out our Facebook page, log on to theopenword.com, and then follow the link to the Open Word Facebook page. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word with David Landry. Please join us next time for the next edition of The Open Word.